Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we're talking to a couple of luminaries from the Britpop movement of the early 90s in the UK. Now, I probably shouldn't have said Britpop because they don't actually like that term, but that's what it is. We're talking to Sonia Madan and Glenn Johansson from Echo Belly. I don't know who in the States knew Echo Belly. They were getting a lot of traction in, uh, you know, on college radio, alternative radio. This song right here, Great Things, was a big one. King of the Curb, Insomnia, Dark Therapy, Car Fiction, Bellyache. These are some of the tunes that were big for them around that, that period. It never really took off in the States, although I, didn't, I think they did pretty well. But what you find out in this conversation is that when the Britpop, so, you know, quote-unquote movement, kind of moved on, so did the careers of a lot of the bands that were affiliated with that term which is, as you know, or can imagine, is a total shame because that's one of my favorite movements in rock history. I was so into all of those bands. And the thought of them being seen as like, you know, a flash in the pan or, you know, temporary or whatever is so sad. In fact, we had on here last year that author, Nick Durden, who wrote that fantastic book, Exit Stage Left. And Echo Belly is featured in one of the chapters of that book. So their story is actually told really well in there. But we catch up with them here, with Sonia and, and Glenn anyway, just about what it's like kind of piecing a career together at, in the aftermath of a movement, of a genre that's sort of seen by some, media probably mostly, as being played out. How they've maintained careers with shows, with further albums, with placements, uh, whatever it takes, you know, to make it, make it happen. I love this band. I've always loved them. Sonia especially, I mean, she was so cute. We're just one of the prettiest front women everywhere who could sing, who could write music. Glenn was incredible on the guitar. These guys had it all. And so I hope if you don't know them, you've heard, you'll hear some things in here that you really like. I love them. They called me from their flat in London. I'm in Denver, Colorado. Oh, okay. Okay. Have you, have you guys ever played here? Yeah, we have uh, a couple of times. Really? Yeah, With who and when? Long time I, I can't remember. Uh, first, I think first time around we did it on our own, did a tour of our own, and uh, we also did a tour with uh, a band called Electric Fiction, which yeah, is yeah, that's the Echo and the Buddy Men guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Will Sargent's uh, been on here. Yeah, and the Dandy Warhols as well. So, I love so, the Dandy Warhols. The three of us, three bands. So we, we played. Uh, I think we played Cold Rod as well. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember oh. exactly where. <laughs> but a long oh time man. Ago. <laughs> Guys, I was so into you, and uh, I know you don't like being bunched together with Britpop or whatever, but in the 90s, I was so into you and those bands and that scene, so into it. And wow. uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I oh. went to college there. So in the 90s, I would have been in the, I would have been mostly in Utah. And I don't think you ever, no one ever passed through Utah back then. But. Utah. Did you really? Yeah. And I yeah, missed yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, and we had a really good response. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So friendly. Good. Really nice. yeah. It's kind of an under-the-radar place because everyone assumes it's super religious, which it kind of is. But that also creates a sort of subculture of people who love, like, alternative rock right. and, and yeah. lifestyle. And a lot of people I have on here will say that's the craziest place they've ever been because – all the anti-religious people go out of their way to make it even wilder and the drugs better <laughs> and the party greater and stuff. So yeah. anyway, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. Okay. I don't necessarily 
I don't wouldn't normally kick it off with a sad story, but I, in reading this book again, again, exit stage left, um, it talks about you guys going on a trip to Nepal, maybe to just get your head straight or something to figure out sort of the next stage of your career. You fly in, and on the way back, the plane crashes and kills everybody. Tell me about this. Oh, well, the um, millennium was was dawning upon the, the world, and we just decided, because we'd had a, a series of um, things going wrong, you know, rock and roll, suicide, drug overdose, uh, lost our record deal, uh, our manager was suing us. It was just horrible, horrible time. And um, Glenn, Andy, uh, the drummer, and myself, we were in a pub, as, as you do, um, and we were drinking and talking about, you know, what the hell do we want to do? And I think Glenn said uh, he wanted to um, look at Mount Everest and listen to Jimi Hendrix. At the same time, it's just this thing you want to do. So we said, okay, yes. let's do it. Let's do it. So we we did one practice walk in the park. <laughs> oh, because that's no exactly the same. Trekking. No idea about trekking. <laughs> and ended up in Nepal, got to Kathmandu, got on this little plane called Yeti Airlines. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the riskiest landings ever because the plane actually has to land on the side of a mountain Oof. and we got there and uh, yeah it took off and crashed and, oh, and, uh, oh my gosh was, I mean, the, there was there was this poor girl as well she just started was her first day so we're kind of serving tea uh you know and it was the first day you know yeah. and it goes off in the mountains in this place yeah. called Lukla. and Playing well, yeah, and just crashed on the way back, you know. So we we found out a day later uh, when we were, whilst we were on our trek, you know. But it, it was it was horrible. So when we flew back, I mean, I was shitting myself. I was so I serious. Bet. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! <laughs> horrible, horrible. That is yeah. so sad, and that must have added a layer. I mean, you're already at this career crossroads trying mm. to figure some things out in Nepal, you know, at Kathmandu or whatever. And that must have, maybe that added a layer of what does it all mean to the whole yeah. thing, you know? It was a surreal experience because we had, I mean, me, I had no experience of doing anything, you know. And yes. all of a sudden I'm carrying a backpack with food poisoning, walking up oh. and down and living in, you know, little huts and tents and um, looking up in the morning and the clouds are below you. And it was, it was oh. the most beautiful place, but because the oxygen level is totally different because of the altitude, yeah. it's really difficult to, to, to walk. So yeah. it was an amazing experience psychologically. And it was so nothing to do with our past. Yeah, our yeah. Past. So it, it was a, a clearing out in many respects. I love that. I think a lot of us dream of doing things like that. But like you think, I would have to train. I don't even know where to begin. And you guys just showed up and figured it out. Well, we were a bit naive, to be honest with you. As Sonia said, you know, we took one walk in the park, ended up in the pub. That was all. We didn't do any training really at all. Yeah. We bought some, uh, you know, some uh, walking shoes and stuff, and and we got some. Well, when we came to Kathmandu, we got some some warm clothing and stuff, and all the things we needed. But we we had no experience whatsoever or, or, or about anything like that at all. Oh my gosh! So, Glenn, I have to ask: Was it a song or an album 
of Jimmy's you wanted playing at that moment? And just, just uh, you know, the millennium celebrations was kind of looming, as Sonia said. So we wanted to celebrate New Year's, you know, uh-huh. just listen to, to, I don't know, cross down traffic or something. Okay. Uh, I wondered at, what it was at, specifically. Mount Everest. <laughs> no, just, just generally, you yeah, know. I think it was the vibe because, you know, the whole millennium thing, it was so um, organized. Uh-huh. And the last thing we wanted to do was have a fake celebration with fireworks in London. We actually wanted to do something a bit more profound. That's um, absolutely so what that was. It was a drunken conversation, but a yearning <laughs> to do something <laughs> meaningful. Yeah. I love that. I love it. Um, Glenn, I wasn't expecting to have you here, but now that I do, I have a question for you. When you guys started mm-hmm. out, I don't know if it was the kind of the publicity or if you guys said it yourselves sort of comparing yourselves to Blondie and the Smiths and for better or worse, that comparison got sort of hooked to you guys for a while. I, I, I understand being inspired by the Smiths, but I don't necessarily hear the Smiths in your music, except that there are moments when you, your guitar playing Glenn reminds me of some of what Johnny Marr might've done. Was he a touch tone for you? Was he an exam or, you know, an influence? Inspiration. Well, to be honest with you, I, I grew up with things like uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, Sabbath, things like things like that. So I was really into kind of things like Jimmy Page and that kind of a way of playing guitar. Um, but when I kind of first heard the Smiths, uh, I, I thought that Johnny played like no one else, really. You know, he didn't yeah. do any, there was no guitar solos or anything like that. It's a totally different approach to the guitar. Uh, you kind of carry a melody at the same time, you know. On the guitar so yes that that was that was an influence that kind of changed my way of playing guitar a little bit i think uh, the approach to, to a song and i kind of had to do you know i wanted to be able to to carry a song with, with some riffs and stuff you know not just uh you know do rhythm guitar so yeah but yeah I, I guess i was a bit inspired by by johnny moore you know okay yeah i was curious i i um you can hear that some of it's in like the tremolo sort of sound that you yeah. will put on a song here and there. So guys, I wanted to know where are you at now? Because again, going back to the book, it, it implies that there is sort of a, as we said earlier, sort of this career crossroads where it's like, you know, you were again, for better or worse, kind of included in this Brit pop movement, whether you deserve, you know, it by doing that it, it implies that there's something fat like a fad to your music which there, it is not that's not it it is like meat and potatoes british rock and roll is what it is but you got swept up in that and when that fad is over careers are over too or at least dwindling and they're changing you had to sort of, I'm imagining, come to a point where you've had to face, what are we from now on? Do we continue to make new music to a dwindling cl- crowd? Or do we play like retro festivals or, you know, big tickets where we're stacking on a bill of five or something like that? Sonia, what are you guys, where are you at today with what Echo Belly is all about? Well, I'm quite proud of the fact that we decided to enjoy the freedom of being unsigned and, and trying to see it as a glass half full yeah. in terms of creativity, at least. Obviously, you know, you're lacking finance, you're lacking uh, the ability to, to you know, have people who do your press and get you mm-hmm. on TV and all that stuff. But the artistic freedom that you get when you just 
throw yourself into creativity and you have no one to answer to other than your own sense of musicality or artistic uh -huh. expression. And the albums that we did after the uh, trip yep, to yep. Paul, uh, you, you wouldn't call them Britpop. They, they no. lived, uh, lyrically and musically off on a tangent and, and, and deepening understanding of what we were as human beings and and exploring that artistic side that you know it's it's, it's a, a double-edged sword when you're when you have a record deal because you get the backing but you mm -hmm. also get people telling you yes and no yeah and so we had one experience and then we had the other experience i could totally see that in fact what struck me this because like i said i've been a fan since since back in the beginning i bought on when it came out and um so what struck me this time that i hadn't necessarily picked up before is the amount of space when i listen to gravity pull gravity's pull it feels like there's a spaciousness and it feels like there's layers to the music that wasn't necessarily there before mm -hmm. before it was a, it was like quicker sort of not always but there were like car fiction is one of my favorite songs of yeah. yours Power pop, two and a half minute jam, but Gravity Pulls takes its time, you know, and it's got it's got some space and some layers. I want to ask you specifically about Big Sky Mind, which is just a beautiful sort of you know, almost like a meditative song that takes on and floats and everything.
And you wouldn't have done that before, I don't think. That wasn't an echo belly well, sound actually, earlier. To, to a certain extent, we were exploring things like that, but we weren't allowed to release them as singles. Oh, interesting. So if, you, if you look at our, or listen to our B-sides. Yes. You can, there are teasers. Yes. Because there's two sides to what we do. There is the obvious, you know, celebratory aspect, but there was always a darker uh, internal searching aspect to us yes. as well. And I think Big Sky Mind was written as lyrically as, as a series of um, haiku, which is a Japanese, oh, I think, syllable sure. short sentence mm -hmm. poem. So mm -hmm. the whole thing was done for me. Again, you know, I, I was free to do what I wanted. So I, yeah. I wrote it as a series of loosely based haikus. And what, what I really like about haikus that I've read is, is that thing where you, philosophically you ask a question, you answer a question at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it's, um, it, it's just a different approach to, to writing lyrics. Yeah. And I had the freedom to do so. And again, I, I'm, very much with, with this I love titles that kind of are open-ended uh -huh. and people think or feel a certain way but don't necessarily have to always ram down your throat what the yeah. song is about so. so it's interesting you say that and I'll, I'll direct this question to Glenn my favorite song of yours of all is Dark Therapy which it never says the words Dark Therapy in the song it's just a feeling you get you know so when I look at the, when I listen to the version of Dark Therapy that kicks off Blackheart Lullabies, it's acoustic. The mood is still there. It's still yeah. this kind of dark, brooding thing, really emotive thing. But it's a, but it's not the song I'm used to. And I think a lot of that has to do with you, Glenn. When you wrote that song or you first worked it out, did it begin like this acoustic thing? Or how did you envision it? Uh, no, I don't think it did, actually. I think it was probably done on, on an electric guitar, actually. Um, I, I just had this chord progression. It's just three chords, uh, B minor, A, E. Uh, all the way through the song, it never changes. It's, it's only the mood of the, uh, of the melody that changes. So, and I, I always like simplicity, you know, and, uh -huh. and, I, and I love the fact that it's only three chords. So, uh, it's a quite an easy song to do acoustic as well. But I don't, I don't think I, I started out on acoustic guitar. I think I've done that on electric guitar with a bit of delay or something to, yeah. to, to get that kind of mood, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Something else I want to ask you about, kind of 
geopolitically. You're both obviously immigrants, I guess. You know, you're from other countries, not the UK. And in America, I don't know if you know this, but it's a mess over here, right? Uh, <laughs> it uh, has been for a few <laughs> years now. And uh, immigrants, unfortunately, are at the heart of some of our political issues. It's a, it's yeah. ridiculous. Do you experience, what kind of experiences have you had over there in this area? I'll start with you, Sonia, because I, for, unfortunately, having slightly darker skin than white people puts you in a crosshair that is unfair. So Glenn, being an immigrant too, probably experiences something different than you do. Uh, yes, but I, I think this subject is multi, multi-layered. Yes, it is. Um, you know, if you're playing on multiculture, it's also multi-layered and multi-opinionated, and everyone looks through their own eyes. Mm -hmm. And there's, you can simplify the whole thing and just say, you know, I feel this way, whatever that is. But you can also see it on so many different layers. Immigration has always existed, but at the same time, as I get older, and it's a natural thing to become a little bit more conservative. There's a lot of concern with, from people who came here in the 50s, 60s and 70s because a lot of them were very, very respectful of the country mm -hmm. and um, came here to work hard. Mm -hmm. And also immigration was, all, it, it was a small percentage of the population. Um, you... I think immigration is a good thing in principle, but I think it's very important to appreciate people who have lived in a country and consider it theirs for generations. They need to be asked mm -hmm. how comfortable they are. You know, mm. governments seem to make up their own agendas and don't take into consideration that their job is to listen to the people who voted them in. Mm -hmm. And I think that... If you get to a level where people feel that they don't know where they're living anymore and they're not allowed to say anything, you're just going to cause friction. Yeah. So I think, you know, there has to be an open debate. If you open the doors, then of course people are going to come in looking for a better life and you might get a lot of what you might call undesirables. Yeah. Or you can you can actually take it seriously and allow people into the country who are highly educated or you know or qualified or you know bring something in as in it's an open debate and yeah. I've got my own personal opinions but I'm also aware that as an artist it's a separate issue from yeah. my political yeah. opinions and I think that fair play has got to be taken into consideration when people have lived in a country and consider themselves to have you know. Roots in that country, they need to be asked yeah. whether they feel safe, whether they feel culturally um, happy with people coming in with different views on on women, different sure. views on, Ooh, yeah. you know, all sorts of issues that are not addressed. It's not just an economic thing mm -hmm. because you're you're actually affecting the the culture of of the country deeply, and it's something that governments don't take into consideration. People come in. With homophobia, with with the and ironically, a lot of people who come in are very racist mm -hmm. in their own way. But this is not taken into consideration. You know, mm -hmm. we have had a lot of problems. Never get spoken about unless you speak to the people who live there. Between black people of two different 
completely different ethnicities mm-hmm. are having huge gang fights in a part mm. of London. Uh, but for, for the white middle classes, they just see, oh, black people. But actually, yeah. they see themselves as, as Africans and yeah. West Indians, and yes. they have nothing in common. And there's a lot of gang fighting, knife fighting going on, and these sort of things, yeah. you know, address. So I think people need to be open and be able to speak their mind without being called a name or without being cancelled everyone has the right to have an opinion and if you suffocate people's opinions you're creating a ticking bomb which is actually the worst thing you can do so that's that's yeah that's part of it too uh for sure glenn what what about you what's your family situation what do you mean like how did you did your parents come over from oh i see i said no 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 I um, I actually came over to to uh, to London or to England with a group of friends, Swedish friends. We kind of had a we were busking through Europe, you know, ah, okay. playing on the streets and stuff. And uh, um, then we just ended up in the UK. Kind of did the same thing there. And uh, then one evening I met Sonia in uh, in uh, in the club, uh-huh. and because uh, we did a little gig there. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, sort of says, but. All my family is in Sweden, so I'm, Back I'm in the Sweden. Only one. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute because I read that getting ready to talk to you about meeting up in a club. So I'm re- I'm reading Mickey Berenie's book right now from Lush. You know, um, it's a great book, by the way. And one thing that either I haven't gotten to it yet or I I missed it somehow is I got the impression that she didn't necessarily grow up with the intention of being a songwriter or a rock star. And when I hear about the sort of serendipitous way that the two of you met i get that impression from you too sonia did you grow up writing songs or at least writing poetry with the intention of it them turning into lyrics or did it just i go to a lot of shows i see a lot of bands i could do that i could front one of those bands oh uh, i wasn't allowed to go out ah uh, that's right because wasn't work. the first show you went to unless in, like, i went college to the library <laughs> Right. Unless I went to the library to study once a week, that was my outing. So uh-huh. um, compared to today's standards, it was relatively strict. So I come from an academic family, mm. and um, what is this thing called rock and roll? You know, no fucking <laughs> no way would they have understood it. So no, it was um, uh, yes, I, I wrote, I wrote, uh-huh. but not with the intention of of being in a band. But when I met Glenn. And we started writing together for fun because it was like, hey, you know, this would be interesting. He's a musician and um, I, I have a, a, a deep love affair with words and mm-hmm. would like to explore that a bit more. So that, that's how it happened, really. And then, then I found I was good at it. Yes. <laughs> that's We'd what go I was on gonna... stage yeah. and there'd be a little a band before us and people would be talking. We'd go on stage and everyone shut up. And I really? thought, oh, this is interesting. Yes. Yeah. I, I was really surprised, actually, about how naturally uh, naturally she took to it, you know, because mm-hmm. she's never done it before, ever. I've had done lots of gigs in the past, you know, but, but yeah. uh, Sonia has never done it. So, But uh, she was just remarkable straight away. And I was yeah. like, where that came from, you know, mm-hmm. come from. It was just, and she had this presence, you know, and she... Yeah. She's like, she became something else once she was up there, you know, yeah. and, and it, it, it's really weird. Uh, yeah. I, I don't it, know where it came from. It probably helps, too, that you're so cute, Sonia. I mean, <laughs> you know, especially back then. I'll, I'll tell you a story. When I was, in, I worked my way through college um, uh, at working at group homes with mentally, at a, with mentally handicapped people, and I would often work the graveyard shift and, like, mm. do my homework all night. 
this was in college and uh i remember one night in particular and this was in the mid 90s so there wasn't like a million channels on tv or dvr or anything i had dozed off on the couch and when i woke up at like three in the morning i'm pretty sure the tv was on pbs and you guys were performing at in the middle of the night on some random thing on pbs public broadcasting and i knew who you were obviously and i was like that that's my band echo bellies on tv in the middle of the night in america i've never seen this before and it was one of like i still think about the joy the rush that i got that night wow. falling asleep it was like a dream you know i wake up in the middle of the night and there's my band on tv <laughs> one of the only time and so oh, yes. it was uh i i'm curious what if any efforts there were made to expand the re i mean you talked earlier about touring through america did, did you was there an effort to break american it just didn't happen i know that insomniac ends up on the dumb and dumber soundtrack soundtrack which i want to ask you about because that's that was a big movie a pretty big soundtrack too but were there efforts to get more deeply entrenched in america um we weren't given the backing to be honest uh, by that's people. what i thought and um i rem i remember going in with a friend to another label and there were pictures of Radiohead everywhere. And I mm -hmm. thought, okay, they're, they're pushing this band. We went into Sony, nothing. No one knew who we were, nothing, nothing, nothing. And eventually, uh, I can't remember her name, but the lady who was the boss there at the time, she and I had a conversation and she suggested we go shopping together. Mm. And I, yes, your facial expression yeah. was my facial expression, <laughs> as in, can you work our music? You know, I appreciate maybe that you consider this a bonding thing, but right. tell me what you're gonna do yeah. for the for the music. Yeah. I don't, I'm not interested in dress sizes, you know. I wanna uh -huh. I, you know, we're here for, for work. So um that was deeply frustrating. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So what did they do? I mean, famously REM wants you to sign up wants you to open for them. Madonna wants you on her label, label Maverick. So there are, there is interest. There wasn't. And what was really nice was that they did have a great team of, of students, um, cross country, actually, students who would work for uh, reps, basically. Yeah. Reps okay. Yeah. Work for student radio, which, and they were amazing. They uh -huh. really helped. So we got a lot of college radio support. Yeah. And if the record company had jumped on it, I think we could have done a lot better. Yeah. But, you yeah, know, I do too. It's, it's very political. Yeah. People, you know, as fans, they forget just how you might think, oh, how did that band make it? It's because they had the backing very yeah. often. Yeah. Glenn, what was your favorite thing about being a rock star? When it happened, I mean, you'd been busking around Europe, playing to who knows what, on street corners or whatever, and then suddenly you put out Ego, you have a major label, well, everybody's got one, a major label, you know, you, you're, it's happened for you. What was, what was that like? To be honest with you, at the time, it didn't register that much. You, you, or, I don't know, it's the wrong thing to say probably, but you got used to it so quickly that it was, wasn't a big deal almost. Yeah. You know, um, th there were moments, obviously, where you kind of—I mean, uh, when a private plane, for instance, you know, first time I ever went on a private plane, I thought, "This is great," you know, "This is fantastic," <laughs> you know, uh, you know, lots of pilots. It's okay to smoke here. Do what you want. It's your plane, you know. Okay, yes. you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, things like that. What? Well, well, it's great memories, you know. Yeah. But 
But really, at the time, honestly, it, it didn't really. You got used to it so quickly, and you were so swept up in everything, and so busy. So yeah. didn't really have time to reflect, I guess. Did it feel special, or did it feel like a job? It felt a bit special, though. I think. Did it? Okay. It never, never really felt like a job. As okay. Such to me, no. I wonder if going from being your own boss as a busker to being with a major label that has expectations of doing morning radio shows and selling this many copies and playing this many shows and everything like that. If suddenly that kind of pressure is like, you're kind of taking the fun out of being a rock star for me, mm. you know, it wasn't like that necessarily. Well, um, th there was some tedious bits, you know, I remember me and Sona, we very often uh, flew over to Paris and sat in a hotel room for a whole day just doing interviews. <laughs> you know, I mean, you start out in the morning with enthusiasm, you know, and you, you explain <laughs> and you expand your, your answers, you know. You know, after like four or five hours, you know, so, you know, an hour, and you, you're so tired of it and it's yes. hard to find the motivation to be kind of enthusiastic about it. But uh, th there were tedious moments, uh, uh, such as that, but... but um, just had to be done, you know. I mean, yeah. they're worst thing to do, sitting in a hotel room all day, you know. Yeah. You know, At least you're not digging a ditch or anything like that, you yeah, know. exactly. Or you know. Working so, a yeah, or... <laughs> yeah. Most, most of it, it's it's, uh, it's great, actually. Yeah, yeah I get it. Yeah. I get that. Um, okay. I mentioned a second ago um, Insomniac being on the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. That was mm -hmm. a huge movie. Do you remember anything about that? Was there any Was there any conversation with you ahead of time? Like, guys, this is... It's a up and coming movie star. We think this movie's going to be big. We're going to place your song on the soundtrack. Or did you just find out after the fact that it was on there? Well, we just signed uh, a publishing deal with uh, Polygram. Uh, well, not Universal, but at the time it was Polygram uh, Music Publishing. And uh, they basically pitched it, and the, well, we found out from them that it's, it's been uh, going to be used in this film. Uh, we didn't know much about it, really. Um, we had some promo stuff coming through with Jim Carrey and uh, what's his name? Jeff Daniels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wearing kind of t-shirts and saying uh -huh. "Echo Bailey" and stuff on, you know. So, but at the time, we didn't think much about it. But uh, in retrospect, we realized that it's, it's uh, kind it's of a big deal. deal. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love the film. You know, I love the film yeah, as well. So of course. Great, you know, it wasn't like a... I think with Jim Carrey, he's such a talent. Yeah. And oh. He just came in and, and just blew everything out of the window. Yes. And that movie is still hilarious. Yeah. yeah it's I up, think so. you know? I yes. think so, yeah. It's a feel-good movie, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. Which is important. And a road movie as well, which yeah. is my favourite genre. So, yeah. you know. Yes. Yeah. And a buddy movie. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and a buddy movie. Um, so let me ask you this. We we try to touch on sort of the business side of things very sensitively on here. And um, I'm curious if having a song in a movie like that that gets played still a lot, is that does that provide pretty decent mailbox money for you? Or was it a one-shot here's a wad of cash for us to use your song, and then that's it. How did it work? Actually, uh, both, really. King of the really? Curb is, is the one that earns for us most in America. Really? Yeah, okay. Show, so. Wow. Okay. world i think but but uh, yeah you, you you do you do get royalties from it still you, know, you, you do get when it comes to any kind of sync deal you know you, you usually get a lump sum of money uh-huh. uh, and then you get royalties on top of that obviously so, so yeah you okay. still see that. Yeah, yeah yeah i'm curious um given the post brit pop explosion period were there lean periods? Have you guys ever had to do anything outside of music? Go back to regular jobs or real life or anything like that? You just um, find a way. We are lucky in that we've managed to survive without uh-huh. having to do that. But um, it's been lean. Yeah. You know, it's been lean. But, you know, as long as you can feed yourself and pay mm-hmm. the bills, it's all right. Yeah. So, yeah. I think the funny, the funny thing is that there were a few very lean years um maybe like 15 years ago but we're actually doing better now than we did 15 years ago which is really strange it seemed to have slowly on on the way up so to speak you know and uh you notice that with festival dates and things coming yeah. I mean, we're actually just about to sign a independent record deal again really so uh, yeah we're just waiting for the contracts to come through from la so so uh things are kind of beginning to move for us again. Um, we've got a new agent, uh, so look, it's looking pretty good. Good. I was going to ask you what you attribute that to. I assume when you go out and you, like how many dates a year do you play? It depends. Okay. It depends. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you release something, then you want to do it. Otherwise, True. you just play festival season. 
So is it, um, are you able to play your own headlining shows like an hour and a half of Echo Belly music there? Or is it mostly, you know, a few songs at a nineties festival or something like that? No, no, we we have played a couple of, uh, you know, revival festivals Uh because the fans are there. Oh, I I love those. I go all the time. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, we, we do our own tours. Okay. Wow. Good for you guys. What survivors? Oh my gosh. Uh, We've done some acoustic shows as well, you know. We've done some Ooh, that would be interesting. Tours. Just the two of you. Yeah. Yeah, we do, we do that a lot, you know. Um, we haven't done it for, for a while now, since all the lockdown and all that stuff. But we're we're about to do that again, actually. And uh, okay. it, it's kind of easy to do, especially in the UK. You know, you can drive anywhere, really. And sure. You don't need much stuff with you, you know. So yeah. it's, uh, it's a good way of, of, of earning some money as well, you know. I bet. Yeah, I um, Do you remember the band, The Church? They had yeah. uh, the Australian band under the Milky Way. So Steve Kilby, the lead singer, he's been on here, and I've gotten to know him. We stay in touch a little bit. And he came through America on a tour, but it was just him and an acoustic guitar, basically, and his friend yeah. Amanda, who Kramer, who plays in a bunch of other bands. And um, they played like a sandwich shop or maybe it was like a little bar or a little restaurant or something by my house. And there were maybe 40 people in there, but he was saying he made more money on that because it's all going to him and Amanda, just, you know, all they got to do is make a little money for some food and gas. And they're just going to bop around the States playing wherever. And it to these little shows and it's, there's no overhead. There's no nothing. And I thought that was so interesting to hear this guy you know, the church had been around forever. They're a great band. And that was one of the most, like, I don't know, economically effective things that he had done was this one little tour. Isn't that wild? I wanted to ask you about the Lustra period because, no offense, if I've, as I've established, I loved you guys very much. When Lustra came out, I was so excited. My friend Christian and I were big Echo Belly fans, and we go get Lustra. And it's pretty good. I listened to it a couple of times. Nothing is quite grabbing me like the first two albums and you quickly sort of put it away and you don't listen to it again for a very long time. That happens to a lot of music, most music, unfortunately. And I wondered, but that moment felt like the album that was meant to do more. That felt like the album that was meant to, you know, the earth is flat or the world is flat or whatever. That, um, I wondered how you look back on that experience 
Well, am we, I right? Yeah. Is that offensive? What I'm saying is that no, 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 no. So, no, everything—it's no. okay. really important that you just say what your experience was. Yeah. Um, we we um, we were part of this thing called Britpop, which. Mm -hmm. It, it was like a bright light, but it was only a couple of years, maybe three or four years at most. Mm -hmm. And when it dropped, it dropped big time. And it was very interesting. Suddenly you're riding a wave and then it's crashed and it's over and everybody's running for cover. Yeah. And Lustra, we were signed to an indie label that was meant to um, move to Warner's. Mm. But the head of Sony, who is now head of Sony worldwide, I think, wanted us on Sony. Mm. And so he, there, there was this year-long struggle between the indie label saying, no, we're taking Ecobelli to Warners, and, and Rob Stringer, the guy who's chairman of Sony, saying, no, I want Ecobelli on Sony. Mm. So a year of fighting. And finally, we get onto Sony, and um, Britpop's over. Yeah. This album comes out too late. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that because, because also last time we just, as I said, we just signed to Sony and they were really behind it. Uh, spent a lot of money on it. Yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah, it was one of those excess stories almost. But, but uh, it, it just, you know, it just didn't do much, you know. Uh, and uh, we kind of noticed that when we were touring it as well. Uh, you know, yeah, we, we used to play um, student places like uh -huh. you know, big student halls, sell yeah. them out all the time. You know, yeah. it was wild. Yeah. And then Lustra tour, half empty. Half empty. Yeah, and it was like, obviously, students, you know, it's a three year thing and you move on, but it was so noticeable that it's crashed. Yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, attribute yeah. that to the. For, What's for that? The whole scene. Not just for us, it was the whole yeah. scene. Yeah. Did you, when you made Luster, did you feel like it was just as strong as the ones that had come before? Did you feel like it was your best material? Yeah. Uh, I I felt so. Uh, we, we worked with a guy called Gil Norton that we kind of always wanted yeah. to work with. He's a legend. Um, yeah, I mean, nice guy. Uh, but... I, mean, I thought it sounded great, you know. Yeah. I, I was I was quite excited about it, especially the first single. The world is flat, right? Wasn't that the first no, single? That might be the first single. I think the the second one. Uh, uh, was it comes Bulldog Baby? Here comes the big rush.
Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, I love that song, you know, and uh, yeah. I love uh, and Bulldog Baby, I thought was great, lyrically and uh, musically. Uh, we had a 24-piece orchestra, you know, and it was just, if nothing else, it was a great experience to, yeah. to, 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 to do, you know, but, but uh, yeah, I think we felt that it was a great album at the time. Um, yeah. I still think it was, actually. Uh, yeah. I mean, there are aspects you, you would change, obviously. I mean, okay. same with everything, you know, but uh, it's a bit full on, perhaps, but, you know. I just, I, that feels like the transitional period, at, both mm. in your music and in your band's career of like things changing and going kind of a different direction. Mm. And I wondered how you look back on that. Um, uh, speaking of songs of yours that I really like that are less obvious, Hey, 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 off of uh, Alchemy and uh, Anarchy and Alchemy. I love that track and it, it, it goes back to what I was saying, which is that I feel like, I feel like there's been a bit of a resurgence. The last couple of albums, even though they're far apart and going back a few years are displaying new sounds and new textures that the band wasn't doing before. Tell me about the writing of Hey, Hey, Hey. Ooh, uh, Hey, Hey, Hey. Um, I remember, uh, I just got a 12 string electric guitar. And I, I tuned it into what's called double drop D tuning. Basically, the E strings are tuned down to a D. So you get that kind of droney sound, you know? And I've just mucking around with that and came up with that kind of riff uh, mm -hmm. uh, of Hey, Hey, Hey. And, and, you know, it kind of felt quite, it was an easy song to write. You know? It just mm -hmm. kind of just came, you know? Um, so, yeah, that's how, how I wrote it on Twice okay. Guitar. I love it. Yeah. Sonia, it feels like your voice is maturing nicely too. It's getting a little heftier. <laughs> What's that? It's all the smoking. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it's working it's in your favor, I guess. You know, not everyone should smoke, but it's okay for you. Um, I'm I'm curious what kind of when you talked about the spark that ignited when the two of you met in that club. What about the spark of writing together? Was there? I mean, did you was and at the beginning was it still just the two of you, or was the whole band involved in sitting in a rehearsal space or something and coming up with songs? Tell me about that. What did no, you first were, write together? It was just we. Uh, no, it was just two of us that was writing the songs, uh, but then we took it into the rehearsal room and everyone, you know, have their input, you know, sure. working on arrangements and so on. But uh, but um, I remember the first song we wrote uh, was a song called Bellier.
our very first EP, and I, Sonia had this little four track uh, Fostex, you know, cassette recorder, and I remember I had that kind of tremolo thing going, and, and um, that was one of the first things we ever wrote. So, demo them at home in the bedroom, basically, really in a very simple way, and took it into Ross room with the band, and uh, hey, presto, you know, that's great. That first album sound is such a great debut. It's up there with one of the one of the better one of the best debuts. It's so full of passion, you know. Yeah, it, it was. It was. It was great. That first album, I uh, remember that fondly. Actually, we went to a residential studio, uh, spent a couple of weeks there, and it, it was just great fun, you know. Yeah. First time, kind of in the oh, proper studio and all that, and it, it, yeah, it was great. It was really good fun. Yeah. You know what I was cool. thinking earlier uh, that uh, there aren't a lot of love songs you know that's just the fallback everybody who writes songs and puts them on with the intention of having them play on the radio most of those people write love songs to get that to accomplish that goal that's not necessarily the echo belly way it's not that there aren't songs about relationships in your but that's not the driving ethos or focus for echo belly was that intentional um, no, for me, when I do write love songs, but that they're always um, open to interpretation. Yeah. yeah, it's not. Oh, baby, I love you. It's yeah. it's more. Is this a love song? Uh -huh. Is it not love song? You know, it's it's more about that. So I feel a slightly uncomfortable doing things like that, mm -hmm. and and also more excited exploring territories that. I don't think have been that explored. I mean, mm -hmm. just going back to Bellyache, the opening word is impotence. I mean, I was like, how many pop songs start with the word impotence for God's sake? The price of a dark affair. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Oh, that's classic. Okay. I wanted to ask, uh, now we have some Patreon supporters, and when um, I tell them who I'm interviewing and if they want to submit questions, they can. One of ours is... Uh, a guy a dj by the name of jake rude who's actually fairly prominent over here and uh he said i'm a big fan that they were the very first band i interviewed for the university of minnesota college newspaper um he said uh not to sound too generic with this question but i truly would like to know what their first thoughts of touring the u.s were and if they have any specific memories of minneapolis <laughs> You, which uh, you might. You just mentioned Denver. Where is he's I remember. I remember Minneapolis well. Uh, I don't remember interview, but I do remember Minneapolis well because uh, the local rep was really into hockey, you know. And uh, it's really big in Sweden as well. Here in England, no, or Britain, nobody knows what it is even, you know. So for me, well, I thought it was great. We had used to have conversations about hockey players and famous Swedish hockey players, etc. You know. But uh, uh, but to go back to to our impressions of first touring the US, it was incredibly exciting. Mm -hmm. I remember landing in New York, you know, driving across uh, Brooklyn Bridge to watch Mount C. Manhattan for the first time. And it was just really exciting, you know. You got to yeah. remember, America is iconic yeah. for the rest of the world in terms of its cultural, uh, it's a modern culture compared to mm -hmm. many, but it's so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I mean, our drummer who'd never been to America, he was literally wetting himself with excitement. He, I remember when we got, got off the plane and he was in the taxi and he was just like a little boy. Yeah. He could not believe he was in America. And it was just, yeah. you forget how iconic America is until you 
go to that place. Yeah. You hear stories of bands like yours coming to America for the first time and finally realizing how big and expansive it is. Did you have that too, where there's just, I mean, you mentioned the UK is this little island. You can drive, drive most places in a few hours, but in the, in the States, your your show might be eight hours, 12 hours from the last place you were at. Was that, are you all on a bus or a van? Are you getting along? Okay. Really? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Sometimes we had to fly, um, depending on where we were playing or what we were doing. But it was mainly on the tour bus. And okay. and uh, that was great, just watching America, you know, yeah. on, from the tour bus. Uh, it, it, it was one of my favorite things, actually. Yeah. Just, uh, just to, um, when you had a travel day, you know, the whole day, just, uh, you know, it, it yeah. was and the changing, ever-changing scenery. And, and it's just something that just blew you away. And you also know? how nice the people are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Americans, I think, are one of the so lovely and polite, and polite. yeah, yeah yes with them which that's i was good i respect that <laughs> on on first meeting one of the nicest mm, you yeah. know countries, nicest people we've actually ever oh good oh America. well that's good I don't, I, I don't know if that would be true today but that's good to hear that at one point <laughs> we were really nice to people um okay one more bad thing and or sad thing and then we'll get we'll close out with some good stuff I read in the book that I mentioned that, and this happens to a lot of people, you had a manager who took off with a lot of your money at one point. Tell me about it was Okay, so you're accountant. Yeah. Tell me about that. That is a common story, unfortunately, with a lot of people, but especially it feels like in the music industry. How well, does something like that man- happen? Yeah. Well, the managers are supposed to take care of this for you, yeah. and we were dreadfully mismanaged by two so-called managers who turned out to be rather incompetent and um, one of them was a manic depressive and couldn't function so I would go into meetings and have to manage the band because he'd sit there in a daze I mean it was just ludicrous but um, we also had um, one of the rock and roll accountants of the time in London he looked after everybody a lot of tv celebrities and um, a lot of artists as well and he was one of these people, he wasn't your typical accountant. He had long hair and he was very friendly with you. So you felt like he was a buddy. Mm-hmm. And um, when we found out that something was wrong, we had a call from another person working there saying, you need to come in. And the, the accountant had kept saying that he was ill. So I actually remember sending him a postcard saying, are you okay? Can I come round, make you dinner, you know, look after you? Because I thought he was sick. And I remember just the naivety of thinking he was a friend mm-hmm. and trying to look after him. But really he was taking time off because he'd been stealing and he knew mm-hmm. it was time to get caught. And um, we got called into the office and it, you couldn't make it up, you know, rock and roll story number one, rock and roll yeah. story number two, all your money's gone. You've yeah. literally got... How much did we have in the bank? Five pounds or something. Oh, and we had something like fourteen accounts. We had Japanese yen, dollar, oh. every, you know, money going in and out all the time. Yeah. And he was the signatory to it all because we were traveling. Yeah, and we were doing pretty well, so there was a decent yeah. amount of money. But he'd not only stolen from us; he'd stolen from lots of people. Uh, oh. Continual little pilfering, which had added up to a lot. Mm-hmm. So. It was just one, just before we, you know, the millennium thing when we said, fuck mm-hmm. it, let's go to Nepal. Mm-hmm. 
which we were also in this state of having all our money stolen as well. It was a very interesting time in retrospect. And he's never paid restitution, right? You've never gotten that back. Prison. Oh, he is in prison. Okay. So he got caught. He had three months in an open prison. Oh, he he did get caught. Yeah, he did get caught. Uh, there was a trial and everything, and it was in the papers and all that. But yeah, he got a very lenient sentence. Because uh, people don't take the music business seriously. The, yeah. the, the judge, there was another court case, a very similar, from a, a so-called tennis club. And the, the theft had been far smaller, and the guy got two years. And for, for music, the guy got three months in an open prison for stealing what? effectively millions. Yeah. What? Yeah. That is yeah. not right. No. Yeah. No. Meanwhile, lives are affected forever, and this guy gets to like skate off for three months. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had to, uh, whatever. That that uh, is bogus. Yeah, it's rubbish. But you know, I'm sorry, guys. In, in, all, in all honesty, to him, I I'm still not sure, or maybe I've been totally naive that he meant it. I think it started off as taking money out of one farm to pay another. Yeah. And it got out of hand and it, yeah. then he realized it was easy because yeah. these dumbass musicians don't know what's in their accounts. Um, True. Oh, that's wrong. I hate that. Um, by the way, where are you guys? Are you in London? Yes. Okay. And and you're not a couple, but you live, you're roommates. We're soulmates, I think. is the best Soulmates. Thing. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We kind of love and hate each other. It's a bit like the odd couple. Um, and we work together. And you know, we've got quite a big flat and share the space. Because London's expensive. Yeah, it is. Even a capital yeah. city is expensive. So why not, yeah. why not just share the space? What a unique also, situation. No families, yeah. no kids, spouses. No. No? No one will have us. We're too weird. <laughs> Seriously, don't play as a musician. We're loonies. Oh, that's great. I interrupted you. What were you going to say, Sonia? I don't remember. Oh, okay. We won't worry about that. Okay. Well, let's close it out on this. I want to know what your favorite stories are from back in the day. I mean, I, I, I remember I was backpacking through Europe with some friends in the summer of 1996. I was in an HMV. And they had these, the greatest album ever, world's greatest album ever, something like that, compilation CDs. And they were all the Britpop bands of the time, right? And uh, I bought a couple of those. And I listened to those obsessively because they, this was the 90s. You could, there was no streaming or internet or whatever. It felt like I had found, you know, treasure of the Sierra Madre in in London or whatever. And you guys were featured on those CDs, and that's where I fell in love with Echo Belly, and I uh, and I and every other, most of the other bands from that era too. Who what were your? Yeah, yeah, what? No, what I'm just wondering. Um, how did grunge fit in with you? Because um, I mean, <laughs> it was le- It wasn't as I preferred the British side of the nineties music scene to the American side. It was all, um, I didn't, you know, I liked 
Nirvana, I like Nirvana, but I felt like every song was on the radio so much I had no need and to like buy the Nirvana CD or whatever. Mm. And say, Pearl Jam had some other stuff. Some things like Alice in Chains were a little too dark and grimy mm. for my tastes. Keep in mind, I was a Mormon kid growing up in Salt Lake City, so maybe my mm. maybe I prefer a brighter side than a darker side. But um, yeah, I was way more invested in the British stuff, Oasis and Blur and you guys and so many others you know that was more my speed Interesting. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. yeah so that's why i was you know i took to bands like yours first of all i'm curious from that era who would you say were your closest friends was there a band like lush or gene or i don't know shed seven or something where you guys were like comrades and you know friendly no. <laughs> no, you were always the outcast <laughs> we, we toured with oasis okay and we got to know them quite well and blur as well and actually. we toured with blur okay. and we got to know them quite yeah. well um, when you say you got to know them quite well is that a good thing or a weird thing no good thing good thing. okay good 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 yeah good. yeah 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 touring together drinking together you know just, yeah yeah doing, doing drugs together. together yeah Maybe. Well, I'm just thinking. Sorry, I I'm, I know that Noel has been very open about the drugs that he yeah. took at that time. So I, it was in those days. It was everywhere. It yes. really was. It, it yeah. was just crazy. You know, not just musicians. BBC, every you know, radio, DJ, everyone. It was just yeah. you know, all over the place. Yes, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So what um if you had to go on a tour right now with Blur or Oasis, who would you pick and why? I'd rather do a smaller tour and do our own. Oh, <laughs> you'd rather just avoid both those bands. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's just um it's a little bit like we're very appreciative of the of the scene that we set ourselves up in, you know, the whole uh -huh. bit pop thing, but we're still exploring ourselves as artists yeah. and uh -huh. don't necessarily think it'd be a good idea to i mean maybe maybe uh -huh. but uh -huh. never say never okay. you probably hear that we're doing a nostalgia tour <laughs> so, again I, no judgment here i would love to see you yeah. in a nostalgia i'll see you anywhere i don't care what it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay both, um, both great bands for different reasons yes yes i love them um okay good so do you have, is there a show, was there a show or a meeting a hero? I don't know if someone like David Bowie matters to you and he was at a show or, yeah. I, I don't know who, what, tell me like you're, you would not believe, you know, when you sit there and you're sharing stories at the pub with someone who doesn't realize you're an echo belly and you're like, you know what, back in 1997, I went to a party with whoever, what are these stories that you tell? Well, we played, because um, we were quite friendly with R.E.M. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what was her name? Stephanie, um, I think Peter Buck's wife, had a, oh. a club called Crocodile Club in Seattle. And we played there. And um, Sean Lennon and Yoko Ono were there. And oh. I didn't, Sean came up to me. He was hanging out with, what's his name, with the blonde hair? Yeah, you know. Eric from Hull. Oh, do you remember Hull? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Erlinson, I think yeah. is his name. Yes, I know yeah. what you mean. Really nice. They, they came to the show, and um, I remember I had blue nail varnish, and they said, 
would you paint our nails? We look, you know. So I said, yeah, guys, come on the tour bus. I didn't know who they were. And uh -huh. so I painted their nails blue. And um, there's a photo somewhere. And then afterwards, I got a postcard. And it, Sean had given me his address at the Dakota. Oh, really? and, uh -huh. and he'd done this, like, really cute cartoon. And on the other side, there was a lovely message from Michael Stipe. So I had this lovely little postcard for an invitation to the Dakota and Michael starts saying, you know, oh my hi guys. You know? Good for it you. Was, it was so sweet. And then when Sean came to London, he called me and I went to this hotel and we were skipping down the corridor, uh, very happy. And he said, I want you to meet my mum. So we went knocking on Yoko's door like two little snorty school children. And it was just like, we ended up going out to dinner. And it, 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 that was a, like a real surreal wow. day. Very happy Good day. for you. That is wild. Lovely, lovely guy. What about you, Glenn? What's your favorite story? I don't know. It's prob I, I probably meeting Bowie, actually. Yeah. Uh, I, I, th I thought that was, again, as I said before, you know, at the time you really didn't quite appreciate it. As you should have done, but but uh, I just remember him, extremely charming man, very nice. We stood out. We had we had two trailers opposite each other. It was in Lisbon in Portugal, I think, and uh, was the Pogues were playing as well. Mm. So it was, it was me and Andy, our drummer, and Bowie, and someone from the Pogues. We were discussing drummers for some reason. I don't know why. And Bowie was wow. telling me about the drummers he's been working with and stuff. And uh, he was just such a nice guy, you know, and. Uh, then he invited us to do another show here in the UK with him as well. But went into his dressing room and he just had a shower. So I, it was it was a bit surreal. But but uh, surreal. Wow. Yeah. Good for yeah, you. It's great. It's great. Well, guys, thank you for talking what with you? me. What's what that? About what about oh, you? Oh man. Well, it's uh, you know, I was just a regular. I mean, I'm a big music fan and always have been, and I got. I got my degree in college in journalism. I was intend. I, my intention was to become a journalist, um, maybe write for newspapers, ideally work in the music industry. And if, as you know, newspapers and the music industry barely e exist anymore. And yeah. so eventually real life, you have to kind of adapt to real life. And so you get a real job and a regular job. And um, for years, I just thought, where can I put my love of music and my desire to talk to people whose stories I don't think we hear often enough. And thankfully I had this idea to start this podcast and now podcasts are everywhere, but eight years ago, they, it was a little more. Yeah. It's quite unique then. Was there anyone like a real hero that you managed to talk to? That you... There's been many, many heroes. Um, a few months ago, I talked to Trevor Horn and he's one of my oh. favorite producers of oh. all time. And I, a few months before that, I talked to Steve Lillywhite, who's probably my second favorite producer of all time. Um, just to cut, you mentioned Blur. I talked to Dave Roundtree uh, earlier right. this year. And uh, Will Sargent from Echo, Echo and the Bunnymen had him on, Steve Kilby. Uh, it's been hundreds. And that's what I was going to say is that for a music fan like me to grow up now and be sort of friendly, you know? Some people like Dave Wakeling from The English Beat we're friendly now. When he comes through Denver, we we meet up, or I'll sit on his bus, and yeah. I just think I'm just a regular yeah. guy, you know. But I I now know these people a little bit, and it just yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's humbling and it's amazing, you know. Right, man. Right. Yeah. 
Well, look, I love Echo Belly. If you can't tell, I've been rooting for you for 30 years. And I'm so glad we got a chance to talk because uh, I just think you're special. I always have. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, there you have it, Echo Belly. Huge, huge thanks to Sonia and Glenn for talking with me. You know, that was actually just going to be Sonia, and I didn't realize that they were roommates. And so with Glenn living across the hall or wherever it is he lives in there, I just, it was like, well, both of you get on here. I love you both. Anyway, such a great band. Thank you, Echo Belly, for talking with me. And again, I hope you guys heard some things you like. I want to close it out. They have a lot of great albums other than those first two, but those were so kind of impressive and uh, they made a big impact on me. And one of my favorite songs off that first album, which we call Ego, but it's also Everyone's Got One, or Everybody's Got One, is uh, Today, Tomorrow, Sometimes, Never. And that's what I want to play for you guys right here. Check them out. Get a greatest hits, whatever you got to do, but immerse yourself in Echo Belly. Now, next week, we are going full classic rock. Um, 70s, 80s, and 90s, up until the present day, actually. This particular person has aligned themselves with several bands over the years that have uh, graced the last, what, five decades or something like that? But it's mostly a pure classic rock conversation. That's what we're getting into next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Makevich, my right-hand man. Thanks for being back. Thanks for doing what you do, being my partner. Uh, folks, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. I have not joined threads or anything else yet. I'm thinking about it, but I kind of want less social media in my life, not more, so we'll see. Um, also, we gave away... The winners have been pulled for all the gifts for the million downloads contest uh those should be going in the mail this week i think they're all coming from yan and then we don't really have any bonus material coming up for the next little while all right so this will have to tide you over thanks everyone we love you <laughs>